This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by leftover Halloween candy. Last night was Halloween. Franklin, what are you ODing on this morning as a result of last night's largesse? Same thing I was ODing on before last night's largesse, which is the good old Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. The go-to. There's Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, and then there's candy. They're, they're two separate categories. It's like uh, it's like its own food. I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, but it doesn't scream Halloween to me because it's they're so everywhere. They're so plentiful. They're in every candy. You go to a, a, an office, a law office, and there's a, a candy jar. It's got Reese's Cups in it. It doesn't, it doesn't like unique to Halloween. I don't know. As the parent of a, a six-year-old and a four-year-old who are professional well, Halloween trick... Well, I am a functioning six-year-old, so you talk to me this way. I, you really can evaluate the soul of a homeowner on the candy that they put out, right? I mean, there's the cheap stuff, and if you put out Reese's, you know, you know you're in good company. Reese's is the fastball. It's worth it. See, I like those obscure ones that are in the bottom of that assorted bag that you just don't see, you don't think about until Halloween. Like, they are all sugar. $100,000 bar or Mr. Good Bar. What's the last time you saw Mr. Good Bar not on Halloween? I don't think anybody's seen a Mr. Good Bar uh, other, than, other than on Halloween. I was right next to my Tab Cola. Yes. Uh, maybe I'm um, not I will say the candies that were prominent when, when you were coming up, Keith Offer, like the... Uh, here we go. The B, the the BB bats or whatever, oh, like those 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 candies. Would you like a Werther's original? <laughs> in in my younger years, I have fond memories of, of eating those candies, and even then, they were classic candies. But they would they would make it into your bag, and they were they were delicious. But yeah, the Reese's is is the is the go to. Well, I'm, I appreciate the talent that it took to talk about kids' candy and still give me a <laughs> punch to the ribs. So let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, Starbucks is making an innovative investment in Chicago, providing seed money for local entrepreneurs to start small businesses and reinvest in neighborhoods. We'll take a look at that and discuss its implications. And next week is Election Day in numerous cities throughout the country, as well as in five states. We'll discuss the national landscape and what restaurant owners can expect. And a friend from Silicon Valley stopped by the pod to talk about the role technology is playing in employers' ability to provide educational opportunities and upskilling for their employees. We'll discuss that with Chris Mancini from Study.com. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line partners, Franklin Coley, Carson Chandler, in the D.C. bubble, Mr. Joe Renzel. Joe? Joe Renzel, are you there? Franklin, I don't, I don't think Renzel's there. Where's Renzel? Nobody knows. Since the Nationals won the, the World Series, he has not been, he's, he's not reported. There's no... There's, nobody knows. Nobody knows. There's no trace of him. He may be in, incarcerated. He may be in the hospital. He may just still be... Celebrating. In, in a local speakeasy. Uh, you never know with Joe. But maybe he'll maybe he'll call in. So Franklin, what is your favorite coffee? When you go out for coffee, are you a Dunkin' guy? Are you a Starbucks guy? It's a complicated question, Joe. But on a daily basis, I think I'm probably a Dunkin' guy. But if it's a Saturday or Sunday morning and I have plenty of time to kind of like... The experience? Yeah, the coffee I may, experience? I may go a different way. I would say even then still I often go to Dunkin', but I may switch it up. I, I don't mind Starbucks at all. I like Starbucks. Starbucks yeah. for me is like, a, is like a great meeting place. Like I have a lot of meetings at Starbucks. It's a good place to meet and get something done, have a cup of coffee. It's, it's much more central like that. Well, Starbucks made some interesting news this week that we call it kind of innovative for me. I had not seen this before. Maybe you had... 
but um, something they did in the city of Chicago with regard to making a very strategic, I don't know if it's a charitable investment or it's a brand investment or a corporate social responsibility investment. But Franklin, tell, tell us what would have happened in Chicago with Starbucks this week. Well, the company made a $10 million commitment to put monies into, it's really like four different nonprofits or companies that lend out micro loans essentially to kind of, I think, sort of targeting disadvantaged populations. And so- And disadvantaged neighborhoods. Disadvantaged neighborhoods. And so this is all under the umbrella of, you know, Starbucks is making a commitment to the city of Chicago to help support entrepreneurship and help support, you know, cultivating local small businesses and that ecosystem within the city that helps for small businesses and local entrepreneurs kind of pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Why don't you talk about it, Joe? Because when you read this headline, you ecstatically ran down the hallway talking about how it was, you know, a fantastic. I just think it's a really smart, smart way to, you know, it's a very modern, very thoughtful way to look at how you engage with X, a city, a company, a community, whatever it is. And they went in and they said, hey, you know, this is what this community, this is what's relevant in this community. This this could really help this community. And how do I partner with the community on what the things that are important to them? And so I think, you know, I'm not I'm not sneezing. At, uh, that's a lot of money. $10 million is a lot of money. But in the way there it's going to be used, it can really jumpstart a lot of, you know, a small business you know, a, a main street business in some part of a city doesn't need $200,000 to get started. They may just need an extra 25000 here or 30000 there to get over the hump and get the doors open on it. And they or could really, less. what's that? Or even less. Or even less. And they could, they could really jumpstart dozens and dozens and dozens of businesses, which can jumpstart neighborhoods, which can jumpstart rallying, coming back. And so I, I just think it's, it, it's, it's doing good. It's doing well. I think it's very smart. Um, and it's just strategic engagement. And so I just, I, I, you know, hat tip, hat like tip for, Starbucks. I like it for all those reasons. I, the, the real reason I like it, and I think it's maybe inherent what you're saying, but I like any time a company, like an entry-level employer, when, when, a, when a company is doing something and the underlying takeaway or message of that is opportunity. And so, you know, particularly for entry-level employers, when the greatest value of that business model is providing opportunity to be doing things, you know, that help communities and that, that help create greater opportunity. So I, I like it, I think, in terms of aligning your community footprint with your, your government affairs message and your overall message, you know, about your business bottle and the value of the company, that all all kind of is bundled in that opportunity message. I would say this approach, this kind of micro lending approach has increasingly gotten a lot of uh, attention and accolades, not only in this country, but also in other countries um, as a way to help grow and foster wealth in communities. And really the UBI, the concept of the UBI is not that universal basic income yeah it's not that far off it's not that dissimilar to this type of approach the idea that you know these these micro loans can help get over kind of the three month you know kind of cost hump if you will and and allow for for people 
and for entrepreneurs to get over those those kind of burdens and, and unleash their potential. And so I think it's cool for a lot of different reasons. I think it's in a, in a in kind of budding policy space, if you will. But I like it that it underscores the opportunity message. And I hope it I hope it has an impact. I hope it does well. And if it does, I think we'll be hearing a lot more about it. it it'd be interesting to see how, how Starbucks, you know, follows that up in terms of, you know, if 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 company if they can you know make a direct distinction that company X and Y small business X and Y was a, a beneficiary of that investment and they're up and running, how does does Starbucks stay connected to that new business no matter what it is whether it's a antique shop or a dry cleaner whatever it is how does Starbucks stay that it's not a transactional one off thing that they stay connected to those businesses it'd be interesting to see what the what the follow up and the get is and, and how they continue to foster and play that role in the community but I think it's just a, a really really good smart move. I like it. Well, Franklin, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago on the pod and talked about it numerous times over the last uh, couple of weeks, but this is our last podcast before Election Day, next Tuesday. Indeed. The Franklin Coley Super Bowl. God. Biggest day of your year. So. God, God bless me. I do, I do love it so. So we've got, um, as we've been talking about prior, we have elections in, work with me here, Mississippi, Kentucky, Virginia, New Jersey, and Louisiana. Of course, Louisiana is the next week, but but yeah, we'll throw that in the mix. So, but we have a lot of mayoral and city council elections across the country and a lot of uh, notable big cities, but it doesn't look like there's going to be too much turmoil in terms of, you know, it's it's not a, at least the city level in this particular cycle, there's not going to be a lot of turnover in mayors or party and, and so forth. But one thing we are flagging that folks should watch is we've been watching a number of, of bigger legacy, older cities, especially like Philadelphia, for example, the emergence at city council level of the Working Families Party and really getting in and taking on incumbent Republicans or incumbent moderate Democrats on city councils. We're watching it play out in Philadelphia. We watched it last cycle play out in San Francisco. What should what should the audience be looking for come Wednesday morning? Yeah, I, do, I think you're looking for, and Seattle's up this week, city council elections, and that was one of the first big cities outside of like in New York City where we saw this dynamic play out where a very notable socialist that you know, is getting hammered by the business community there in Seattle and, and Amazon's wearing a lot of that. But we saw it really start this kind of revolution. I guess, so I guess that was like four years ago, really, right after the Bernie Sanders, you know, big kind of rise. What did, what did we, what, what was our phrase back then? The embers of the burn. That's right. The embers of the burn were smoldering <laughs> in cities across the country and we were really uh, happy with that when i fired the call god i need to get that back in the just day-to-day lexicon so yeah so we're watching for that dynamic all across the country and it it is oftentimes what we see is whether it's a working families party or socialist alternative or democratic socialists or whatever these groups and these individuals are jumping up and running for city council and even if they're just running in one seat they're pulling the entire council to the left And they're putting a marker down. And what we have in Seattle is we now have this chamber-backed group that Amazon has dumped $1.5 million into and Starbucks has actually donated to and a number of others. And they are going after the two at large, essentially, at least one's a socialist, um, socialist, 
And so this is a dynamic that we'll be looking for on Tuesday to see if it continues to play out or if it's kind of peaked. And just just for context, you remember we talked about this a year ago or more when Seattle, the city council, passed this head tax, essentially a, a tax on employment. And it was passed, uh, I think, unanimously 9-0 at the city council le- uh, level. And then Amazon, some other businesses raised, you know what, and forced essentially politically forced a repeal of that. And the the tax was repealed almost as fast as it was enacted. But it was it was enacted at first on a nine zero vote, but repealed on a seven two vote. So those two city council people that voted against the removal of that head tax are now the target of this very well funded, very aggressive no-holds-barred, bare-knuckled fight in Seattle. And I can't stress enough that those two persons really spearheaded the $15 an hour minimum wage push in Seattle. They were AOC before AOC was AOC. Like, this is this is all built upon, and they came out, they were invigorated by Bernie Sanders catching fire. Like, you can draw direct lines between all these different kind of national pushes, and Seattle's at the center of it. So, you know, for this reason, um, on Thursday of this week, this city council race is, you know, on, you know, front page of the New York Times, Amazon tests, quote, soul of Seattle with deluge of election cash. And so we will probably spend way too much time next week talking about what happened in Seattle. But everyone is watching this city council contest because it does have national implications. The way There's this a lot of implications, a lot yeah. of ramifications. And, uh, and I do love this. I'm just... We're not going to go down this path, but one of the issues in the election is, and this is so Seattle, I, I freaking love it. It is uh, this con, <laughs> this conflict over democracy vouchers is what they're calling. Candidates for city council in Seattle can be funded by $25 vouchers. Every property tax payer or property owner um, gets four vouchers they can give to whatever candidate they want, and the cost of that is tacked on to property tax bill in <laughs> Seattle. And they get to vote their democracy vouchers for the candidates, and that's how they fund the campaigns. And anyway, this influx of business money has short-circuited that system, and it's just so Seattle. I love it. Well, it has a lot of ramifications. I mean, if, if those two city council members are able to withstand that deluge, that fire hose of money at them, and they're, and they're left standing Wednesday morning, that will have a chilling effect on business community activism everywhere. 100%. You know, and it will uh, convert Conversely, conversely, put a lot of wind at the back of those previously viewed as very fringe left-wing candidates at city level. And if they survive in Seattle and the working families, people do well in Philadelphia, you, you can see a lot more people jumping in the boat in the next election cycle from that from that kind of team. 100%. And the part of that dynamic is there's a reputational cost to Amazon in addition to the 1.4 million or 1.5 million check they wrote, probably plus, plus, plus. But there's a reputational cost to Amazon in their backyard to do this. And if there's no kind of payoff, uh, not a greater payoff in terms of electing some more sympathetic members to the city council, guess what? As you said, People aren't going to do it again if it's if there's no you know if the benefit is not worth the cost. So it's going to be uh, a very important uh, race to watch and uh, we'll be up late slash. I was going to say, what are you going to be doing Tuesday night? Are you gonna, like are you going to do it from your office? You can do it from the couch. You're going to go to Starbucks and have a coffee. Where are you? What's I'll your be, plan? What's your plan Tuesday night? I'll be on my couch with my headphones on, listening, and. Uh, and typing away these results, even though they'll come in, you know, late because it's West Coast time. City council race should come in quickly. Yeah, so they're, probably, they're pretty wrapped up. Pretty I'll fast. probably stay up, 
stay up for this one. Yeah, so it should be interesting. But there's other cities up too. Like you said, most of it is is static, but there's there's kind of a, a few worth watching, you know, in no particular order. Houston, there's a Houston is interesting because there's a very popular incumbent that's probably gonna get re reelected. Sly Turner, he is uh, he is a challenger who's a Democrat that is running kind of as a centrist and the mayor there, the incumbent mayor, is characterizing him as a Trump supporter. And so Trump has become infused into this Houston mayorals race. <laughs> Two Democrats running against each other, <laughs> by the way. And so it's become this national referendum in the Houston uh, mayoral race. Uh, two other factoids from Own the Ground in Houston. There's 100 candidates running for city council. And uh, one of them is a former member of the rap band Ghetto Boys. So lots, lots going on in Houston. But there's some big cities: Charlotte, Columbus, Raleigh, uh, Indianapolis. I mean, there's some notable, you know, yeah. Phoenix and and uh, Tucson. And so, and, um, and in Raleigh, I'm just just going right. to pull out a couple of the big ones. Raleigh, essentially, you're going to have a new city council. Like, there's a lot of incumbents that are retiring or whatever else, and they're going to have a new mayor because the, uh, the mayor's not running for re-elect. And it looks like it's probably going to be Miriam Baldwin, who came from the city council. In Charlotte, for the first time in a long time, an incumbent is going to probably win again, and we're going to have a steady hand forever. You know, Sue Myrick and Anthony Fox and Pat McCrory, there, was, there were these long-term mayors that, that steered the ship and grew Charlotte in the, in the right way. And we've had just constant churn and turnover. That's a two-year cycle, too. So this will be the first re-elected mayor in forever. So that's good for, I think, Charlotte, probably. Indianapolis and Philly, those are both cities, I think, where we those have... Those are the honors. Yeah, incumbents being re-elected yeah. and an unlikely kind of change up in the dynamic. So, yeah, Tulsa, Columbus, uh, Aurora, San Francisco, you know, there, there, there's a... There's a bunch of big seats up, and, uh, you know, after next week we'll be reporting in what the, the big surprises were. But the jurisdictions we just listed off are the ones we're, we're kind of watching. We will report back next week on the results. So, Franklin, we've been talking a lot, obviously, on the podcast the last few weeks. We kind of, you know, talked about the Muffso conference and what we learned there. We interviewed Ron Ruggles about, you know, how much attention was paid to employee retention and, and trying to limit turnover. And there was a lot of presence by tech companies, Google and other companies, presenting about data-driven analysis and results and the, the confluence between, you know, the tech and the industry continues to grow every day. And, you know, and, and how, how are we leveraging technology to help us in our efforts to retain the, the best employees and keep the ones we want and, and so forth. And I know you noticed, you mentioned the Flex Conference as well from, I guess, a month ago in Idaho. So, Franklin, you made the point earlier that um, even at the Flex Conference a few weeks ago, that was a subject of much discussion. Indeed. You, you came back from that conference saying that uh, one of the things that you walked away with is there's a lot of micro benefits, I think is how you described it. If not, I'm claiming that term that essentially the companies were piecing together a bunch of different benefits that looked completely different than, you know, the restaurant across the street or next door. It is based totally in what their kind of workforce was responding to. You mentioned like Spotify For accounts Starbucks. was yeah, yeah. something. And yeah. 
Obviously, tuition reimbursement and other things have been in that mix as well. Yeah, you know, the other key theme that I would say came away from the Musso conference was convenience. And, of course, Ron Ruggles meant it in terms of customers getting food conveniently, but we could take that convenience also to benefits and a hundred other things that the restaurants need to be getting better at making resources more convenient for their employees. And we also, as our audience knows, work a lot in this workforce development upskilling space. We are joined today by Chris Mancini, who is the Chief Growth Officer for Study.com. And we've been talking offline about how do we use investment in employees, skill development, education, you know, not only an investment in them, investment in our companies, our communities, but again, as an HR retention, retain attraction tool. So Chris, welcome to Working Lunch Podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. I, I think you may be our first kind of S- Silicon Valley kind wow. of tech guru. Wow. That's that exciting. Embrace, I, hopefully I- the pod room of, uh, of the Working Lunch. Hopefully here, I so. bring all the uh, outside the box thinking that you're gonna expect from Silicon Valley. So you've been working in this education space mm-hmm. for a number of years now. You yep. Your company created a lot of has, has created, continues to operate a lot of educational platforms. When you talk to the employers that you talk to, when you talk to the employer community, what are they saying to you about their workforce and their challenges on retaining workers and what they have to do to be competitive? Yeah, a lot of folks are telling us that there's definitely a need to retain folks. They're finding that, or a lot of research is showing now that 53% of the turnover that you're seeing out there is preventable. And with the millennial population specifically, they're really looking for some sort of training and development. But as we all know, with millennials, making it convenient and bringing it to them is much more important than necessarily just having the benefit. And so it's kind of flipping things this on its head. Uber, Amazon generation yep. wants things brought to them. Yes, exactly. Even so, their own development, they want somebody to bring it to them. Yeah, yeah. So something on demand or something in their pocket or something they can do when they have the time to do it. And so it's a little bit of a sometimes can be a challenge because traditionally, training, education, development has always been, you go somewhere to get it. And now we're trying to figure out how can we actually bring it to you. And that's been one of the biggest things that we work with companies to try to figure out because it makes for a, a better workplace overall. And I think a lot of companies you know, are being very active in this space. There, there are very few companies left anymore that you know, in terms of bigger corporate entities that don't have some level of tuition reimbursement, some yep. level of assistance to help employees in that, in that process. But it's surprising when you kind of dig into the numbers how few of their employees are right. taking advantage of that. Why, why is that? Yeah, Why is only 1% or 2% of people taking advantage of, a, of an employer's fairly generous tuition reimbursement program? Yeah, it's really interesting. We, um, we've done a lot of sort of research with the clients as well as the employees. And the first thing you would think, right, is the economic burden of education. So you would think that if it was, or training, if it was provided free of charge that the employee would go and get it. But the bigger challenge with a working environment is folks just don't have the time for the traditional training and development. They, they can't find an hour to set aside to do something like they used to be able to. They're working multiple shifts. They have, they have issues with family. They have a number of things going on. And so the biggest challenge to get folks to take advantage of these things is making it convenient for them and making it flexible. So it's not really about the money. No, it's, it's not about, about the money about at the all. time and the, and, the, and the structure. Right. I mean, the money's important, right? Folks want to make sure that, you know, they don't leave a job or go into a job and then leave with a tremendous amount of debt. 
but first and foremost, if they can't access the content or they ha don't have, or they can't drive to the content or they can't sit in a room for 90 minutes, then it doesn't matter how much it costs. In fact, you could probably pay them and they still wouldn't do it because they just can't. So one of the, one of the big issues, uh, obviously public policy issue, it's all in the papers, you know, it's in the presidential, Franklin, every Democratic presidential candidate is talking about is student debt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that em employers want to be, you know, responsive and to their employees' needs, they want to, again, attract, rec recruit, retain, blah, 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 but they don't want their folks leaving right. whatever training that is saddled with giant student debt that will take them forever to pay off. Right, exactly. And so, you know, as we work with clients, one of the things we try to do is come up with a program that's going to fit within the tuition assistance or tuition reimbursement programs that the companies have so that if a student is moving through, whether it be a bachelor's degree program or an associate's degree program, when they move through it, it all can be covered by the benefit provided to them by their employer. And that can be tricky because in a number of the uh, current processes out there, folks are paying three, four, five hundred dollars a credit. For, and so if, if a company is providing two, three thousand dollars a year of tuition assistance or tuition reimbursement, if someone wants to actually take a meaningful amount of, of courses, if they even have the time to do it, they're going to saddle themselves with five to six thousand dollars of student debt every year they do that. If they wait and, and just use the money that is being provided by the employer, which is very generous, it can take them 10 years to get a degree if that's what they want to do. So folks are trying to find something that meets in the middle that can, one, bring the education to the employee, and two, um, cut down the cost so that it can meet the requirements of the, um, of the benefit from the company. And, and one of the conversations that, that you and your company and your industry have been having is with elected officials in terms mm -hmm. of how do, because elected officials, you know, we forget a mayor is a CEO of their, of their yep. Of their, of their town, their yeah, town yeah. government, right? And they yeah. have an employee base that they're trying to attract, retain, and, and, and upskill. And you're seeing a lot of cities getting into this space as well in terms of the, 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 yep. the skills development and educational expansion of their, own, of their own employees. Yeah, and it's happening a lot. We're from Silicon Valley, and it's happened there considerably where the city governments, we're in Mountain View, California, which is right in the heart of LinkedIn, Google, Apple, everybody's there. And and We're big fans of the show Silicon Valley, so we know all about it. Oh, okay, fantastic, <laughs> right. fantastic. I'm sure it's 100% accurate. It is 100% accurate, at least in my household. But, you know, one of, the, one of the big things that's happening there is cities cannot attract talent given that they have to uh, compete with Facebook or they have to compete with Google. And those folks have celebrity chefs in every day. They have free dry cleaning, free everything, and, and it's really difficult for the cities to compete there. And so um, what the research is showing, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, is that millennials do look at benefits more than they do salary. So the, the, the cities definitely have constraints on the salary, but millennials are also very interested in training and development. And so if cities can figure out a solution to offer a very, very robust training and development opportunity for their employees, they may very well be able to attract talent that would potentially go to Facebook, Google. And it's not just in the Bay Area, right? We've been traveling all over the country, and it's even becoming a bigger issue outside of California, where folks in Texas and other areas are afraid of California because we, the Californians, are all selling our ridiculously priced houses, moving to Texas, and taking the jobs away from the folks there. And so, the, so then what's happening is there's just this huge issue where citizens and city employees need to be upskilled to meet the requirements because the Californians are coming. 
So, so, so one last. Don't be afraid. We're nice people. But, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a sitcom. It's like a bad or western or something. Yeah. yeah. In your in your travels and in, in the nature of your business, you have a lot of conversations with traditional four-year universities, mm-hmm. uh, smaller universities, not, regional non-profit mm-hmm. universities, uh, you know, online universities, mm-hmm. the whole the whole gamut. And the restaurant industry employee base is essentially working adults, right? Yep. You're seeing a, a lot of focus now in not only newer, more innovative university settings, but traditional university settings about focusing on working adults. Yeah, there's a number a number of the traditional universities um, are looking at the, there's there are 33 to 35 million working adults in America that have some college credit and no degree. So these are folks that for some for some reason had to stop their journey as it pertains to education. And it's probably because they had to work, they had life experiences get in the way. And so these universities are understanding that, you know, they want to educate people. They believe, as we do at study.com, that education is a basic human right. It's something that makes the entire world better. And so they are beginning to look to alternatives to bring their education to this population because it's a group of tens of millions of people that they haven't been able to get in front of. Um, and so they're looking for alternative ways to do it. And so we, as a company, partner with, with with a number of folks to figure out how we can help bring that education to those folks and then bring it forward to uh, corporate entities. It does strike me that we're in this period of, it seems like, incredible disruption in the yeah. traditional kind of higher education where there's a lot of... Which is not a... Uh, an enterprise that looks very much different than it did 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, the traditional kind of four-year college experience is relatively static for yep. forever. And now yep. it seems like, and there's such a focus within companies, uh, with policymakers, with mm-hmm. the work you're doing, and this kind of skills gathering, right? Yep. And I guess that falls under the upskilling kind of umbrella. But it just seems to me like there's just so much change going on right now that, you know, if education institutions aren't in the business of going out and, and meeting these folks where they are, and companies meeting aren't... Meeting these folks where they are, that's an important yeah. point. I, I, that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, meeting yeah. Meeting folks where they are, it's a good, that's a good and, point. And, and, and companies... That, yeah. <laughs> and companies should be in, in the in the business of facilitating that. I, yeah. I, I think that's that's a real opportunity, and I would say, too, like... And it's good for them. 100%. And this is a situation where just you get credit for trying, right, and participating. We see the National Restaurant Education Foundation is doing the same thing. They are piloting a bunch of different kind of programs, workforce development programs all over the place, compressed trainings. They've taken ProStart and compressed it down into a restaurant-ready course, yet again, meeting people where they are. This is just a great space to be in. Yeah, and, you know, for us, it's really about if we can, you know, within the restaurant environment, there are so many workers that are most likely, or we know are within this 35 million population that are somewhat stuck. And if we can help develop those folks, not only will they be more contributing members to the company, they can move up and there's basically a progression path for them within the company and it's better for the company. They're also better for just the overall city and the and the community that they're living in, right? And so to be able to do that for your employee base um, and hopefully get that one to two percent rate of folks taking advantage of education to five to six percent is huge. And it's huge not only what it's going to do for the company, but it's huge what it's going to do for just the population at large. Well, and we heard one interesting comment from uh, one of our leading companies that said, you know, investment in this space, you know, yes, it helps the employee now, obviously, it could potentially help the company as well. But you make that kind of investment in an employee like that, 
that may be a customer for life. Yep. You know, yep. If, I, if, I, if, if I'm 22 and I remember that, you know, restaurant one. X, yeah. you know, helped pay part of my deal and yep. blah, 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 I'm probably going to be a, a patron of restaurant X forever. Yeah. yeah. And from our standpoint, we'd like to see them get elected to Congress. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> continue well to be, continue to be an advocate and a leader for the industry in Congress. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, no, absolutely. And a lot of the data we have from just clients that we work with and the employees that are going through programs that we put in place, over 90% of them have a better outlook of the company that they were sponsored by. That's great. It's very close to 100%. It's just not a total 100 well, Chris, being an, innovate, an innovator in the education space is probably a lonely existence. But, uh, you know, Godspeed. I, well, thank you. I think I'm lonely for a lot of other reasons. So, <laughs> um, but I appreciate that. The other Can we check in with you uh, a few months down the road and see yeah. how progress is going on in this Absolutely. Space? No, All it's right. a pleasure. Thanks, you guys. Chris Mancini, Chief Growth Officer, Study.com. Thank you, guys. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, we start with wages. Mr. Coley, our home state of Florida, made a little news this week. Going to the ballot, $15 an hour minimum wage. We knew that was a, it was a no-brainer. They got yep. their signatures. Yep. So it'll, it'll now go to, for a review to, to see whether it's all tidy, and but there may be some litigation down the, the road trying to alter that language or get it thrown off the ballot. So we'll I see. It's unlikely to be successful. Um, given you never know. A bunch of lawyers ran it, and they've done this before, but we'll see. We'll see. It's also got some uh, wind at its back. If you had to call it today with a gun to your head, you'd say it's probably going to pass. But... You know, we'll see what happens. Uh, Denver, Colorado, some more activity on the local minimum wage there. Yeah, um, the Colorado Restaurant Association and some other groups in Colorado, I think like the NFIB and basically local chamber, have notified the city of Denver that they plan to sue if they move forward with their minimum wage increase. One of the charges is that they're not taking uh, public input, although there's been five of six public hearings on it. which we talked about before, the uh, Potumpkin Villages that are these, uh, what I call it, oh, Kabuki Theater, <laughs> yeah. call last week. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see what happens here. This seems like a long shot to me, but, you know. Got to do something. Got to do something. When yeah. going gets tough, tough, write a letter, right? All right, and moving to Fifth Third Bank made a little news this week on the wage front, uh, enacting a previously announced minimum wage increase, Franklin, to 18 bucks an hour. $18 an hour. And why do we care about what Fifth Third Bank does? It's just the marketplace is getting tighter, wages are getting up, upward pressure. Why would I work in the kitchen at Restaurant X if I can go work at Fifth Third Bank for 18 bucks an hour in a clerical setting? So just the marketplace continues to rise on the wage front. Do you know the story behind the name Fifth Third? I, I've often been intrigued by it. It's a, it's an awkward, I, I think I knew it at one point, but of course. Um, the merging of two banks. like The Third Bank and the Fifth Bank? Yeah, 75. Years ago, oh my goodness! Midwest or something. Okay, go yeah, it's an Ohio, I think it's Cincinnati-based company. Yeah, that would qualify as Midwest. Paid leave, a little uh, bill introduction in Congress this week, bipartisan. Yep, another bill going nowhere. Um, <laughs> so so cynical. Yeah, child tax credits, essentially, what you're looking at, you get an immediate five thousand dollars, and you can defer those costs, and they can be paid back over ten years through these tax credits. So, you know, look, there's a bipartisan effort, whether it's this or the Rubio bill or the others. You know, it's all they're going to figure out something here within the tax code, I think, to address this at some point when all the dynamics line up right and there's a big negotiation on the table. I guess this is all assuming that Congress functions like Congress is supposed to and once did. But there's good that there's still conversations happening and there's consensus that's gelling around using the tax code, doing something like an earned income tax credit type 
type system here. So that's it's, good stuff. It, it's what we've been saying about the wage thing of economists. You know, the a vast majority of economists, even from the left, say the tax code is the best place to address this kind of stuff. And, you know, if the labor community could ever be open to a an approach on paid leave where you are leveraging the tax code as opposed to a benefit, you know, we might make some progress on that. So what I do like about these these new bills, and that I like that they're bipartisan, but I like that they're on the tax code side of the ledger as opposed to the benefit, you know, wage side of the ledger. San Antonio, a little bit of activity on that new fledgling paid leave ordinance the city passed. Yeah, it's, there's a hearing next week uh, to consider, the judge will consider a permanent injunction. All this is happening while the state Supreme Court is going to at some point hear the Austin law. And so it's going to be interesting really to see that will be the final say, obviously, and it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out because that will impact all these other cities. So we've got some more legal proceedings ahead of us till we sort things out in Texas. And uh, as we often do, we're going to give a Bureau of Economic Research it is not a union-funded think tank. It is not a hack shop. This is a real academic institution made up of economists from all over, universities all over the country. I may add the University of Maryland's represented on their board. Um, shameless plug. But Franklin, it found some really interesting. It studied the California paid leave law that went into effect in 2004. It's been studying all these data points for the last 15 years. What did they conclude? And California's paid leave law was the first in the country. So this was the first you know, beta test of what the impacts of this are. And as you said, they did a very long-term study. And it, it involved a Federal Reserve Bank economist and a bunch of economists from different universities across the country. I think three universities. So as you said, it's legit. And essentially what it found is the results are mixed, as you would expect. And it's one of these things where if you read the press coverage, people are plucking different factoids out of it. But Basically, it found little evidence that the law increased women's employment, wage earnings, or their association attachment to employers. And it found also that women who took leave lost an estimated $24,000 over 10 years compared to women who did not. So there's a couple ways to look at this. You could look at this as a financial penalty for having taken paid leave, or you could look at it as there was a $24,000 investment made in childcare that otherwise would have been paid out at some X amount that may have been less than or greater than 24,000. So there's a lot there's a lot in here to kind of unpack and I think we can expect a lot of people are going to do that over the coming months and years, particularly as more jurisdictions pass these laws. But, but, what, it, but what it essentially did, though, Franklin, right, is that is proponents of the paid leave law say without these laws, you you are feeding into this pay inequity, this gender inequity, all these 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 ills, these, these social ills. And this study over 15 years said that is kind of not the case. There are these other there's these other things that happened, but the paid leave law didn't help address those things. I'm not. I'm not sure. There's little evidence that that, that had any effect on wages, or you know, it did. It didn't. It, it doesn't appear that they found that it was the miracle salve that everybody that their opponents say it's going to be. I think that's up for debate from from this study. I think you could draw that conclusion. I think you could also draw other conclusions and say there's a cost to it, but there was also great benefits as well. And you know this kind of this doesn't take into every externality into into effect. So there's been limited press coverage of this. There has been press coverage, and to your point, they all pluck different facts and kind of take a different conclusion. There will be much discussion of this report and study for years to come. 
And there was a, a great opinion piece in Barron's this week that was in our Midnight Reads that talked about leveling parental leave and, you know, from not just maternal leave to paternal leave and, in fact, requiring it. Are you, are you being a advocate? I'm being a advocate because to, to your point, Joe, that that, many would argue, many economists would argue, would basically erase some of these other kind of baked-in inequities. Because right now, it's a voluntary, it's kind of a, a, a voluntary policy. What you end up with is a lot of mothers taking it and dads taking just an abbreviated version or not right. taking it at all. And therefore, there's always going to be a little little unbalance there. So anyway, this is a good study. This is a thorough study. This is a legitimate study. And this other economists that study California and other states and other cities that have passed paid family leave laws will build off this study. So it's important to watch how it's discussed and how it's talked about. And I do think that the results are somewhat mixed and there will continue to be additional studies that tease out you know, some, of, some of the stuff you mentioned. Switching to uh, labor policy, this pay data issue continues to just have a life of its own and c- continue on. We had a, a federal judge get in the act this week. Yeah. The, the EOC wants to wrap this up. They're not, they're going to essentially kill this, this requirement, this rule. And so they just, the judge required them because, you know, the mandate under the Obama administration was they were going to collect the data, required them even though they didn't want to collect the data. They basically said, yeah, we got most of it, 72.7%. We think we're done. We think that's the highest level of compliance we need. We made, we gave it the good old college try. It's like when you came to me this morning with that op-ed, Joe, and you said, look at these facts I've stuffed in here. And I said, you know what, Joe? There's just not enough facts in here. There's too much, there's too much jazz hands. We need some more facts. And so the judge said to the EEOC, we need some more data collection before we're going to let you off the hook that you've completed your task per the way the Obama administration written the rule. So that's that's it. They got to go back and they've got to go after these uh, employers and try to get more data, more compliance. Franklin, switching to this fluctuating work week rule, do you have any other fictional uh, analogies to make regarding this this rule? I'm gonna have to think about that. And <laughs> okay. Get back to you at the end here. So the fluctuating work week rule, kind of like. Polak Joe's from last week's Polak podcast. Johnny's. Uh, Johnny's, <laughs> which I feel like is a somewhat dated uh, company name. You know, the commonly used term referred to as a fluctuating work week rule would be the Chinese overtime rule. I feel like that is a kind of dated term, but that's how it's commonly referred to and known. Chinese overtime. That's that's Google it. This is the fluctuating work week rule that the Labor Department is has promulgated essentially new rules and it's fixing, and a number of employers use this method, it's very complicated, but they use this method to calculate overtime and, and quite frankly float employees' schedules to prevent them from going into overtime. So they've rewritten kind of how that happens and how that's done, and it's getting ready to pop out of the of the process now. OMB has kind of approved it, so we're at the end, we're at the end of the the procedural hurdles. All right, let's switch out to California. Uh, this Uber Lyft issue with independent contractors, man, it has a life of its own. It continues on. We talked uh, some weeks ago about Uber and Lyft threatened to put a pile of money into a ballot initiative. It looks like they pulled the trigger. $90 million. $90 million. Just let that wash over you a little bit. $90 million. Yeah, you know, and Bradley Tusk was quoted in one of the articles who is a 
well-known lobbyist in New York City who has ownership in Uber and now is a very wealthy man. But um, he was saying in, in one of the articles, like, this AB5 is going to destroy the business model. It's unworkable. It's going to cost it's, – it's, we're already unprofitable. You know, we can't do this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to screw up our, our margins. But then they dig in the tinny penny bank and throw ninety million dollars <laughs> yeah, on the table. Yeah, we're like, so oh, broke. Um, but here's ninety million dollars. Yeah, you can't do it because you're unprofitable. But, but you can fund a ninety million dollar ballot initiative. So the the irony here is California passed AB five to directly target the rideshare companies. And if the rideshare companies are successful in their ballot initiative campaign and exempt themselves, they will not be touched by AB five, and everybody else will be left holding the bag. Um, so we saw the beverage industry successfully use the ballot initiative process. Uh, I think it was last session, the threat of the ballot initiative process to get a state preemption and beverage taxes. And here we have the ride share companies trying to essentially replicate that model and, and use the ballot initiative process to, to force an outcome. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So we're going to switch to New Jersey, but New Jersey shows, is, is, I want people to pay attention to this New Jersey thing. New Jersey shows why we have put so much emphasis on this California thing in the last six months. It's the the life cycle of this issue and why it matters. So tell everybody what's going on in New Jersey on their their independent contractor in the confluence of that with portable benefits. Yeah, and so California and then New York and Illinois have said they're all going the direction of the essentially Assembly Bill Five route and then portable benefits. Well, New Jersey already had an ABC independent contractor test. It was one of the most expansive in the country that was very similar to California's new AB5. New Jersey actually scooped California on this stuff. They were ahead of the curve. Yeah. yeah. And so now New Jersey basically has advanced out of committee and kind of has in the one yard line this new portable benefits regime, essentially, that would allow for portable benefits for uh, ride share companies. And so they have kind of leapfrogged all these states that were kind of following California, and uh, they now will kind of be the new, you know, to the extent you say there's a model, you know, they, they will be the leading edge of this this conversation. And it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, they are, this is going to be kind of a first of its kind type of situation that New Jersey's looking to implement. So obviously, this impacts restaurant tours in the sense that, you know, these are delivery drivers and th- there's that aspect. But, but it's opening the, it's, it's, now we got portable benefits on the books. Once you have a portable benefits infrastructure in place in a state, it just, just not seem that hard to then expand it from one sector to the fast food sector or the C store sector or whatever else. And so, in perfect, perfect segue to another sector what happened this week in Philadelphia with domestic workers? So this is again, Philly is now on the, the leading edge of this conversation too, just at the at the city level. So domestic workers, we talked about this last week, domestic workers, you know, your nanny that, uh, that helps with kids or helps with, uh, you know, grandma or, or whoever. Traditionally, a lot of those those folks have just been paid cash, and they're kind of they're in the gray economy, if you will. Now we have these big platforms; they are scaling that gray economy, black market, if you will. And so, what Philly has said is, we need to protect these workers. And because these workers aren't employees in any traditional sense, they're not filing nine nineties or W twos. You know, how are we going to do this? 
And so what they have come up with, and it'll be interesting to see, here's the thing too, it's probably not gonna be challenged in court. Like there's no organized business lobby that's gonna challenge this, but what they've come up with is they've said, for any transactions, if you pay a nanny over $5,000 a year, they are automatically, you are required to form a contractual relationship with them, which essentially makes them like 1099. And if you don't, you are they are automatically under contract by uh, essentially an agreement that has been written by the city that bestows all these benefits on the worker. It, it outlines, you know, minimum payments and periodic rest and meal breaks, paid time off. Essentially, it creates an employment contract for you. That is the default. And so if you pay a domestic worker more than $5,000, you now essentially have a contracted, independent contractor and employee in your, your home. And so a city agency is going to be built that essentially enforces this and is empowered to create a portable benefit system. So all that time off and those breaks and stuff is baked in that contract. Now you have an agency that not only oversees and enforces that, but also can establish a portable benefit so that paid leave, that paid time off can be transferred across employers. This is totally new. Like this has not been done before. They are creating this out of thin air from scratch. And and the same thing is probably gonna happen in New Jersey when they enact this law. So it's gonna be interesting to see what this looks like. And yes, it could end up on the shores of other sectors like yeah. the restaurant like, sector. Like tipped employees could yeah. be there overnight. It could be dry cleaner workers. It could be parking valets. It could be quick service workers. If you're a restaurant owner or operator, please, Call whatever trade association you're a member of, the chamber, the NFIB, the restaurant, the hotel, whatever it is, and tell them to get in the game on this issue before it... This thing passed in, in Philadelphia, and how fast, Franklin? Two weeks? Yeah, it had no opposition. And who would oppose it if it came after QSR well, workers? Renzel, yeah. Renzel, Renzel made the point. How often has that been said? Yeah. Renzel made the point on last pod, and, and I just kind of hinted, hinted at it earlier. There's no organized opposition to this because there are no employers really you know there's and so this is just happening with no conversation other than academics and essentially labor line policymakers dreaming this up out of thin air you know so it's crazy and this is going to be a whole new kind of regulatory regime to operate under and we're going to sit here and it's going to we're going to be on the hot seat in about two years on this and everybody look up and like, why would why did anybody tell us about this Standard procedure. One quick, not a correction, because I don't really make mistakes, but I misspoke earlier. Instead of the trigger point being $5,000, it's actually five hours of work per month. So if a domestic worker, housekeeper, nanny does more than five hours of work per month, that triggers the uh, the contract requirement. All right. Joe Biden made a little news this week. Holy shnikes, man. So Joe Biden, the moderate in the race, I guess the business-friendly alternative in the Democratic presidential primary, has been drug way to the left in all these labor policy issues, along with everyone else. So he announced a series of commitments this week, essentially kind of expanding and defining his labor platform, abolishing right-to-work laws. This is the Joe Biden presidential platform. Yeah. That is the center. He must be in trouble. That is that is the center, if not the right, maybe even far right, because Yang is just nowhere. He's like off the spectrum. Like you can't even count him. So that's that's crazy. Abolishing right to work, abolishing no poach agreements, essentially striking out most non compete agreements. 
He's embraced the PRO Act. He's embraced Assembly Bill 5. He's embraced this, embraced this whole approach to misclassifying of uh, independent contractors, which is closely linked with the franchise issue, I might say. Even though he hasn't come out essentially in opposition to the franchise business model, he's, he's like right there. He's right on the doorstep of it. Yeah, I mean, Democratic Party is in a, a far different place than it was under Hillary Clinton today it is dramatic and if you look at elizabeth warren i mean i would say both parties are in a far different position today no about that. they were five years ago but like the labor platforms both are unrecognizable party, and where elizabeth warren in particular is elizabeth warren may be the most labor friendly kind of front runner candidate for the democratic party in our lifetime in 60 years you know you, you get to go a long way back to look at it's someone that's kind of as progressive on the labor front so anyway joe biden has been drug all the way over there so you know you know what state joe biden was a senator from delaware right Correct. do you know where joe biden's actually from where he grew up pennsylvania right scranton Correct. pennsylvania home of there. dunder mifflin that's that's where he did his uh, labor policy rollout and in, in scranton pa yeah you know another famous joe from scranton pa who yeah, might yeah. that be Indeed. The legendary general counsel for Outback Steakhouse, Bloomin' Brands, Mr. Joe Cato. Just two not very average Joes from Scranton, PA. Little little nugget of trivia. A lot of Joes. A lot of Joes. A lot of Joe. All right, well, let's uh, let's wrap up the scorecard with wow. two little gems from New York City, uh, which never disappoints for, for newsworthy items. So this, this Grubhub thing that's been going on there, the New York City Council is fired up because they think these small... Uh, restaurants are, are being cheated by Grubhub, the big delivery platform, and they're intervening on behalf of the small restaurants. 30 of them sent a letter to the delivery platform this week demanding that they repay these um, alleged erroneous charges. We talked before, it, we just think it's kind of a bad precedent for restaurants to go ask the New York City Council to intervene against a, a business on their behalf. but. We'll see how this plays out. And then uh, NYU released a study this week. We haven't talked much about childhood obesity on the pod in a long time. It hasn't It's kind of been an issue that's kind of gone off to the side a little bit. Um, what did NYU say? Yeah, this this is kind of related to the the food desert issue, which was really a hot topic for such a long time, and has kind of tapped down our food insecurity, the kind of linked issues. And essentially, what it's finding is children that live next to QSRs, and they also studied bodegas and uh, C stores, that there are higher rates of, of childhood obesity due to that that proximity. It, it essentially has established some causality between the two. That's obviously a, a problematic issue kind of moving forward, even though a lot of the energy and discussion around that has died down. That is that is something that the brands always need to be thinking about. Many have responded over the years with healthier menu items and dialing back marketing to children, uh, you know, for certain foods and et cetera, but can't lose sight that that's an issue that's always kind of in the mix. But we have a much better story to tell. We should look for opportunities to continue to tell that story. I mean, Yes, kid living next to a McDonald's, a but you know how many salads McDonald's sells? I yeah, mean, I, I mean, how many? I mean, McDonald's sells a lot of healthy food because they've got a lot of good offerings. And guess so, what? You know, and we have a good, what? we have a good, we have a better story to tell than we once. And guess what? Those restaurateurs versus you know, our good friends at the C stores or bodegas or whatever else are they are entering these communities and they are hubs in these communities and if they aren't there then it's a, you know, C store. And so, you know, you can put a lot of these restaurant offerings up against C stores any day of the week. And, I, you know, everybody wants a Whole Foods, but, you know, Whole Foods goes where Whole Foods goes. And, and there's some neighborhoods that aren't going to get a Whole Foods. So 
restaurants are not only the places, the meeting places, the public square, the community gathering points in a lot of these communities, but they also provide them uh, food and good food. Yeah, and, and you know, as, as we learn, you know, we work a lot in the C-Store space, the profitability on fresh foods is, is really high. You know, they, they, they want to sell as much fruit and produce out of a C-store as they possibly can, as, as the market will allow, because the, the markup's pretty good. So, you know, I think there's a good story to tell in that space, and we should look for every opportunity to continue to tell it. So just something to flag, just to, if it kind of re-sparks a conversation on the left uh, on, on that particular issue. So another week near the scorecard. I'm sure we'll have plenty, plenty again next week. Franklin about wraps up pod number 139 of our pod career. Before we leave, lightning round on predictions, five states, quick answers. What happens in Kentucky? Blue. Red team wins Kentucky. What happens in Louisiana? Not next week, but if it rains everywhere but New Orleans, then John Bell Edwards wins. That'd be kind of hard geographically, you know. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's going to be a coin flip. I'm going to go red. Red team wins. But it's a 500-vote differential. Red team wins. Mississippi? Red, okay. but it's going to be closer than we think. But that means only a 30-point spread, right? I'm thinking like a 12-point spread instead of an 18 or something like that. But. All right. In New Jersey, we know the Democrats will hold both chambers, but will they increase their margins or lose margin? I'm going to put that in the who cares category. doesn't matter at all. Democrats, you're, you are correct. Democrats grow their majority. And turning to Virginia, the big, the big tamale that everybody will be watching nationally for tea leaves for the 2020 race. The Republicans own both chambers by, I think, one vote in one and two votes in the other. Democrats, as we've been saying, have spent ungodly amounts of money, a lot of money going into Virginia. Do the Democrats take both chambers of the Virginia legislature, the House of Delegates and the State Senate? Yes or no? Joe, I am hearing the sweet sound of the American blues <laughs> playing across the radio station, or the St. Louis Blues will be winning that night. However, you want to do it, I think the blue team is gonna is gonna win. I think the blue team is gonna win. I think the current uh, speaker is cardboard boxes in his office, getting ready for smaller accommodations. I will say guess. though, Virginia is a case study of how Democrats will do anything. Anything they can to lose. Um, every <laughs> yes, yes. every prominent Democrat figurehead in the state has gone through like a scandal, four major scandals, self self imposed scandals in the past two years. Yeah. Just doing everything they can to hand it over to the Republican Party. They we'll want to see if they're successful. Or they not. wanted to get rid of the governor, but the lieutenant governor was so tainted that he couldn't become governor. It was just a a mess all around. And, so. and the next person down the rung, I can't even remember who it is, the AG. The AG <laughs> got caught up in a sexual harassment scandal. I think that the other two were blackface scandals, and yeah. then there was a, some other scandal with the LG. Anyway, just it's nonstop. It's crazy. Fantastic. Democrats. All right. Well, we'll see next week how wrong or right we were. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.